Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The remarkable Adabe avenged his defeat by very elegant when he turned the tables on the mare in the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes. In finishing third, Darlesan ran right up to his Doncaster performance, while fourth place getter Think It Over, a late scratching from the Doncaster, proved how competitive he would have been in the big mile with only 52 kilos. The curtain will come down on the championships on Saturday the 24th when two more Group 1s will be decided. The $600,000 Sweeps All-Aid Stakes and the half-million-dollar Moaton Chandon Champagne Stakes. There'll be four Group 3 co-features. The Hallmark, the JRA Plate, the James Carr Stakes and the Frank Packer Plate. Country owners and trainers will be delighted to see the return of the Tab Highways with a Class 3 over 1,200 metres on the final day. How good it was to hear the crowds cheering again at Royal Randwick and the fans will be out in force on Saturday to give the 2021 Championships a fitting send-off. If you had to pick an active Australian jockey who's cast in the mould of the legendary Scobie Breezley, you'd probably plump for Glenn Boss. Scobie was a 50-year-old grandfather when he won his first English derby on Santa Claus in 1964. He was 52 when he won his second on Charlottetown in 1966. Glenn Boss is now 51 and just like Scobie, retains his fitness, his dedication and the ability to keep his weight under control. And just like Scobie, he's still winning the major races. In the last two years, he's won a Doncaster, an Epsom, a Sydney Cup, an Australian Oaks, a Cox Plate, a Tancred Stakes, a George Ryder Stakes, and you better throw in a couple of ordinary ones called the Everest and the Golden Eagle. At the moment, only four Australian jockeys have ridden 100 or more Group 1 winners, and they are George Moore, Damien Oliver, Jim Cassidy and Roy Higgins. Hugh Bowman is within two wins of the century, Glenn Boss is sitting on 90 in his home country, and another 10 seems a pretty lofty goal, but nobody loves a challenge more than this bloke. When you interview an achiever like Glenn Boss, it's hard to know where to start and where to finish. There's so much ground to cover. Bossy, I reckon it's best to just play it by ear. How are you going? Yes, um, thanks, Toby. That was, Toby, that's um, to put me in Scobie's. Um, that's pretty lofty, but um, yeah, I, I appreciate that absolutely. Despite having ridden ninety Group One winners, you're best remembered by avid fans and casual onlookers for the magical Melbourne Cup hat trick on Maccabi Diva. Let's have a quick review, mate, of the first one in 2003. You were well back, you were one horse off the fence, and then you got a, an amazing run between horses. Yeah, she was magnificent that day, Tappy. Um, like she came off a huge run in the Caulfield Cup where she ran fourth coming from last. Mm. And um, the wheels were in motion that we knew that we we pretty well had the right horse to um, win the Melbourne Cup. She had great stamina. Mm. Um, and, and and she'd been trained beautifully, and um, she she had the great asset of, of being able to relax very good in a race and conserve a lot of energy, and, and she had amazing turn of speed. Mm. Um, you know, she regularly um, clocked the last half a mile and the last six hundred mile uh, six hundred meters of the cups that she won quicker than the sprint races on the day. So she mm. she was a, she had an amazing asset. So. Um, mm. Yeah, that was a great thrill. You know, having been beaten on champagne like barest the margins a couple of years earlier, mm. um, and felt sick for oh, felt sick for weeks over that. And um, to finally mm. get my first one was was an amazing achievement. Mm. Well, that one that you mentioned on champagne was in 1998, 
Um, mm. That big New Zealand mare won the race, Jezebel. Jezebel. Glenn, you dashed at the 200. You must have gone half a length in front of her. Yeah, I dashed quickly and um, I thought the races, you know, and I get that mare a beautiful ride champagne that year. And, and unfortunately, what people don't know, she actually went wrong in the race. Um, um, she faltered with me about about 30, 40 metres before the line. I felt something go. Mm. Um, and her will to try and get to the line kept her going, but she pulled up. Um, yeah, she broke down in that race that day. Yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah, she never raced again. Uh, real shame. Um, but um, yeah, to get one ripped away from you when you thought you had it was, geez, that was really gut wrenching for me, to be honest. Yeah. It took me a long time to get over that. She was a Zabil too, wasn't she? Yeah, she was a beautiful Zabil mare. She was, yeah, yeah magnificent mare. David Hall trained Maccabi Diva for that first Melbourne Cup win. And then he left uh, to take up a contract in Hong Kong. How could he ever have imagined that she'd win another two? Yeah, well, I think it was, well, in a strange twist of fate, I think it was the move that made her win another two. Mm. Um, going to Lee Freeman's care and Mark Dell, the property down there, just she just took to that like a duck to water, I don't think. Mm. You know, no disrespect, I don't think... David would have done the got the two out of her. Um, mm. Trained in the city and all that time. I just don't know if it would have worked. Um, anyway, that's it. But you know, who, who knows? But I, I'm glad it went that way because I just knew that she just thrived in that environment, and it was just incredible. You know and, um, what she did over the next, mm. you know, two and a half years was just extraordinary. Yeah. Well, Melbourne Cup number two, two thousand and four. She had four point five kilos more. She was in front of seven or eight horses at the half mile. You were cluttered up near the fence turning for home. And I can remember just for a few strides, you were behind a tiring horse. Do you recall that? You looked like you might have been in a spot of bother, but you got around him and then the heavens opened. Yeah, uh, it was, you know, that was never really a bother for me because, you know, even though it was really soft conditions and obviously Vinnie Rowe was in town and he was obviously the horse to beat. And yeah. In those conditions, he was rated the best two-miler in the world at the time and probably one of the best wet trackers in the world. So, mm. you know, she had a bit, arguably a massive task to beat him, um, but she was up to it. You know, she got a beautiful run and, um, you know, she just – I think I only went around one horse in the race, to be yeah. honest. I, I can't remember going any around any more than that in that race. And, mm. Um. Yeah, she she sprinted on t- on soft ground like she did on top of the ground, and um, yeah. it was a bit of a slugging finish. You know, we go into the line, and mm. uh, but she managed to get the upper hand on Vinnie Rowe that day. And um, you know, Dermot Well was he gave her a massive rap that day because Dermot he said my horse was perfect, perfectly ridden, perfect mm. conditions, and she was too good. So that was a a pretty big compliment from someone like that, saying mm. you know that coming from the world's best two year old, the world's best two miler. Yeah, um, she she beat him and. Beating fair and square, so that you know that just projected her into the yeah. stratosphere on the world stage. Yeah. What about the year after, two thousand and five? She had fifty-eight yeah. kilos more than any winning mare had ever carried. The hype was enormous. The worldwide television audience was massive. This was a compelling moment in Melbourne Cup history. Now, Glenn, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but. I've always felt that no jockey had ever ridden in the Melbourne Cup under more pressure than you were under in 2005. I'm sure you were conscious of it, but you rode that mare with cool, calm precision. My old boss, Ken Howard, would have said, Bossy, you've got ice water in your veins. Yeah, Tabby, it was all about trust, you know. By this point, I'd really... I, I, I knew what I had, you know, and 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 Lee Friedman had done just an unbelievable effort with this mare to, man, to manage her to get to this point. Um, he had her absolutely humming along beautifully at this, at this moment, um, obviously coming off the back of winning the Cox Plate and she had, you know, that 10 days and she just thrived um, down at the property. And so I was just so confident Um but the nerves obviously were there and the pressure was there because all I had to do was make sure I, I didn't d- disappoint her. Um, mm. I knew she was going to be almost too good. I, the weight was obviously a big issue. Um, but I sort of just blocked out a lot of the noise and, and I, mm. I just come down. I just knew I had to trust her and 
And um, all I do was just not disappoint her, make sure I had her in the in the position where she was, you know, going to have clean air and I would deliver the, the sprint that she can deliver at the right time. And, um, mm. yeah, but oh, she was magnificent that day. She was just everything that an animal should be in plus. She was, she just mm. broke beautifully. She got my, she, we both got into a great place. And when I just asked her to come off the bar, she just completely switched off. Yeah. Um, and getting towards a half mile, I knew it was all over. She, mm. she, she was just starting to, you know, really come up underneath me and get ready, um, mm. just waiting for my next command. And, mm. you know, when she pushed out into the open and um, we let go, it was all over then. And mm. I've never enjoyed a moment, and I probably will never enjoy a moment on a race track like I did that day. You know, I could hear the call the last furlong and a half, and, you know, nothing was going to come from behind me because she sprinted too quick. And, mm. um, yeah, what an amazing feeling to know that, like, it's, it only lasted, you know, probably 20 seconds. Mm. But it was just, geez, it felt like ages. It was just, you know, you could hear the crowd, you could hear the call, you could hear everything. It was just, um, it's, it's, what a moment. I'll never forget that. And Greg Miles' call, of course, of the closing mm. stages has become legendary. In fact, he said a champion becomes a legend. Yeah, and, you know, I could hear that. It was unbelievable. I heard that as we went across the line, you know, because like, mm. the speakers are there, you know, but uh, it's so just uh, – I could hear it as clear as the clarity was unbelievable and the, mm. the crowd because mm. um, normally you just don't have time to hear these things all. But I just had this moment where I just, um, I don't know, it was just weird. It was um, mm. great, great feeling. It was suspended in time. Almost, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the, and, the, and the moments after were my greatest moments on her, you know, like pulling up, um, you know, and, and I was just in such awe of this uh, amazing athlete. Mm. Um, what what she'd done for me and what she'd done for, you know, the, Tony and Christine and, you know, the Friedman brothers and, you know, Lee and um, what she'd done for the public, mm. you know, for the Australian racing public and just general public around the world. And I really got a grasp of that of what we'd just done. Mm. And so I tried to, you know, I took a long time to pull up. I went right down to the 1,400-metre mark because I just want to thought, I thought, I'm going to stay on this horse. <laughs> I want to stay with this this moment as long as I possibly can. And I understand, I took a long, yeah. Yeah, I took a long time to come back and then I just I just give her her moment in front of the crowd where I just let her be the person, be the, be the athlete that she was in the and, – mm. and, uh, and she duly delivered. She stood there and just looked at the crowd and the, it just almost felt like it was that – I know it's not like the movies or anything, but I just had this feeling that it was a moment where she just knew that she – you know, it was all about her. It was because she just stood there and looked from one end of the crowd to the other and just stood there and it was like took it all in. It was just. She enjoyed it as much as you did. Well, I just had this feeling that she did, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but yeah. um, I just had this feeling that she she knew that she, that she'd done her job and, and it, I don't know, it's an incredible feeling. You won a total of seven Group 1s uh, on Maccabi Diva. Are you saddened by the fact that her achievements as a broodmare have greatly disappointed her fans and no doubt her owner, Tony Santic. Uh, there was a mare called Diva Nation who won $75,000, easily her best performer. A couple of others have won very small amounts of money. And, Glenn, it saddens me to think that one of her progeny won two races at the picnics. Yeah. You couldn't believe it. Well, no, not really. I do believe that because mm. if you look back at the history of the – I'm talking champion mares um, and there are only a few of them um, because that word gets thrown in very loosely and disrespectfully mm. sometimes. Um, when you talk about the absolute champions, and champions have to do it for many seasons and they have to do it at a level and different distances and different you – know, they have to do it at handicaps and weight for age. That goes for both sexes. But when you look at the champion mares – um, and the champion mare, like the, the ones I've noticed and ridden, they're almost too – they're like the men. They're like the boys. You know, mm. I firmly believe that the genes get mixed up just in the human world as they do in the horse world. Mm. Like they're so dominant, so big and powerful mm. that they're not feminine at all. Mm. Um, Very good point. Well, you know, you look at the sun lines and the emancipations. You go back and look at the greats. The, you know, the, the, the black caviars, winks, they're mm. big, dominant, powerful girls, you know. I mean, there's nothing feminine about them at all. They're mm. strong. There's, you, know, they're, you know, they're above 550 kilos, mm. most of them, 
Um, and they're beasts. When they get on the racetrack, they're absolute beasts. Mm. Um, and I, I firmly believe that, that they genetically get something gets they get a bit differently wired up. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I love your theory. The genes get mixed up. Well, I think so. I, I mean, I'm just I, and this is not fact, but just is just is just mm. an observation. Um, because they're not these petite little feminine fillies. No. They're just beasts, and they act like big, strong colts. They, they've got mm. this different – they're wired a bit different. Mm. You mentioned that Mayor Champagne a while ago. Wasn't she a feminine, sweet, dainty-looking mare? Yeah, she was a beautiful mare. Um, yeah, she was. And she th- I think she threw some pretty handy uh, horses, actually. So, um, mm. But getting back to your other point there, you know, John, I, 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 it doesn't it, – it doesn't mean that that generation, that breed won't throw. It'll be it'll be Mackay's daughters, yeah, or her granddaughters. Something something else will come along. You just have to wait and watch. You know, mm. uh, it, it will come through again. It just might take a generation. I hope you're still riding, son. Oh, I don't think so, Tappy. <laughs> but I'm hopefully I'm around to see it. <laughs> yeah, you will be. You were born and reared on a farm at Bow Desert. One of five kids born to mum, Lorraine, and your dad was Tom, mm-hmm. and you were literally riding before you could walk. That's no exaggeration. Yeah, I loved it. We were fascinated with the animals from the get-go, you know. Um, yeah, it was – yeah, I, from the first time I was got introduced to horse tappy and got on their back, it was I was hooked. Um, I was just in awe of the animal, just the power, their grace, um, mm. how such a big animal can be just so um, – like so calm around us and and and, and so um, infatuated with us as much as we are infatuated with them and mm. um, but just and I was always always thinking you know these things are so big and powerful they could take you out in a heartbeat but they're so kind and gentle yeah um, and so needy of us it's crazy um, yeah I, I mean I, I'm the same now I can I love going to studs and just sitting there and just watching young horses walk around and just the way they do things it's 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 um it never ceases to amaze me to be very honest pony club was a natural progression for young glenn boss and you took to it like a duck to water you were competitive in most disciplines especially the ones that required speed you loved it yeah yeah anything that just required going to going to the edge all the time uh, Mm. pushing the boundaries um because you know you're never scared, you, you know you just went flat out on everything, and um, yeah, it was just I was all about the spot. I didn't like the dress hard, you know. No, too slow. You know, yeah, just too slow. Show jumping was okay, but I loved cross country more. Yeah, because um, it was a bit quicker and a bit more dynamic. Um, you know, just all those the faster things I was right into. Um, I excelled at those ones. One day, your grandma dot took you to the Gympie races. You were right up near the 200 metres mark when the field flashed past in the first race. Something happened to you in that moment. Yeah, it was um, it was an incredible experience, Tappy, and, like, I didn't know what the races were. I didn't even know what a racehorse was, to be very frank, and mm. you know, I went to the, obviously went to the races and the other than where we pulled up and, um, you know... I, we, I went to the – there was a race being run. They were just about to come around the turn at Gympie, and um, I, I was standing at the outside fence. And, I mean, if anyone's got ground level and, and literally only 10 metres away mm. from, you know, 10 horses all together running, mm. the ground just it, – it vibrates, you know, and it has this particular sound, you know. Oh, it does, And yeah. obviously the horse is going past, thundering, and the jockey's, you know, yelling and screaming at them and mm. – and it just went – it went past so quick. It was like, whoa. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. What I'd just seen. And just, you know, it's just that feeling of the ground and the noise just, I don't know, something happened inside me. Yeah. And I thought, wow, how exciting was that? Mm. You know, and um, I, I made, honestly, I, I, I was halfway through grade 10 mm. at Caboolture High School. Yeah, and I I went and I went back. At, we were back at school, like at school on Monday, mm. and I quit. I quit. I quit school. I said to Mum, "I'll come home from school." I said, "I'm not going to school anymore. I want to become <laughs> a uh, jockey." Yeah, and Mum was like, oh, "She didn't even know what." And I did. I true to my word, I was back up again for the virtually a week later. Yeah, and um, I was looking to get be apprenticed. It was just yeah, 
it, it, it chose me in a way. I didn't choose it. It chose me. Mm. Well, your so, grandma enlisted the aid of the QTC to try and arrange an apprenticeship for you and they got one with a gimpy trainer called Terry Chinner. Now, Glenn, the term horse whisperer didn't even exist in those days, but you have no doubt Terry Chinner was a horse whisperer. Yeah, he had a him and his wife Kathy had this amazing, unique way, which I you know I'd broken horses when I was a kid, you know, like you know I educated horses, mm. you know, it's just it was all a learning process for me when I was a kid and going through pony club and you know it was a lot of it was hit and miss and you know learning by your mistakes, but to eventually get to see real true horse horsemen and women mm. um, do what they do with horses and how they had so much control over a horse with just voice voice, voice commands mm. just uh, and just suggestions with their hands mm. um, suggestions with their with their facial expressions mm. um, to get a horse to do anything by just the slightest of expressions on their face and, and have so much control over you know a 500 kilo animal um, and like putting their hands with I was ex- Oh, it was extraordinary to watch. Mm. Um, and they just taught me the finer things of, you know, the subtle ways to get a horse to do what you want them to do mm. um, and without them even knowing that you're doing it. You know yeah, what I mean? They yeah. wanted, they actually want to do it. Mm. It's not you doing it to them. They they actually want to do it to you. Mm. Um, Good heavens. You know, even like, mm. you know, you'd walk into a paddock with a with a, a angry colt and you'd just stand in the paddock and you just stand there and ignore him. And you might this might take hours, this might take three hours, mm. it might take half a day. But you'd stand there and he'd be he'd be thinking, what's this bloke doing? You know, like and so he'd be he'd become he'd become he'd want to check you out. You don't yeah. check him out. And, you, and so what you do, you and you're inviting him into your space, yeah. but he's actually inviting you into his space, but yeah, you're not doing it, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So just subtle things like that mm. um, and how to, how you win their respect and their, you know, um, mm. you win them over by doing virtually nothing, you you know what I mean? So all these little things mm. that I learned when I was a kid and, um, and this is what I still, you know, do today, you know. You, yeah. You just you tap into their mind without even doing it. That, that mm. You ask them to come to you mm. um, to be your friend and um, – mm. Yeah, without pushing them or asking them to do it. It's just, it's incredible. Terry Chinner must have been some sort of an amateur psychologist also because you tell me at the time you had a morbid fear of horses bolting with you and one day he puts you on a very headstrong animal in track work at Gympie and your worst fears were realised when it took off with you. Yeah, it was incredible to have it. Like, I was always a bit – because I was – you know, we were just used to riding horses flat out in big paddocks, you know what I mean, mm. um, and just going wherever you wanted to. Um, but the, the 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 thought of having fences all around me, like especially in a circle on a racetrack, um, was da- was really daunting because I never – you know, I never ridden on a racetrack or done track work. Mm. Uh, it was all about being in a paddock. Um, and even when I, with Terry's, when we, I was learning my craft as being a jockey, riding a bit shorter, it was in his paddocks uh, on his property. It wasn't on a racetrack. No. So the first time I went to a racetrack and I was, you know, going around in circles and there's, you know, timber fences and oh, it caught a, mm. half caught me off guard a bit. And I become, I got a bit, um, and he could see that I was a bit itchy about this. And, um, yeah, a bit windy. Yeah, I was, and you know, he 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 recognised that, and he put me on this. He found the probably the worst bolter at Gimpy Racetrack, yeah. And um, it was he put me on it, and yeah, of course it went out there and bolted about four or five laps. <laughs> yeah. And I was swinging off this bloody thing until I was nearly <laughs> couldn't stay on, and I come back in and I was red raw and half fuming, and mm. you know, and he said, "What happened?" I said, "Oh, the, you know, the effing thing bolted. I couldn't stop it. it went round and round in circles." And he yeah. said, "But but what happened?" And I said, well, it just went round and round in circles. And he said, but are you hurt? And I said, no. He said, did anything really happen? I went, no, 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 nothing really happened. And, uh, yeah. and that was a lesson. That was a lesson right there. And, um, mm. mate, he completely cured me in the space of that that episode. And um, what I learned from then is you just go with them and don't worry about it. What will be is what will be. Yeah. And uh, and from that moment, it was that was gone. Your magical first winner, 
came about on the 14th of December 1985. You won a race at Gympie on a little mare called Bassatika, trained by Terry Chinner. And that was a start to a terrific first uh, 12 months as an apprentice. You won 80 races in your first 10 months to lose your country claim and the decision was made to transfer your papers to Kay Tinsley on the Gold Coast and an important new phase began. Kay had been a jockey too, Glenn, hadn't he, in New Zealand? Yeah, he was a wonderful horseman as, as well, but he was a, he was a more of a, he was a, very good jockey, um, and he could, and he was a great mentor to me. You know, he, he, incredible mentor. Um, mm. I had the opportunity to catch up with with Kay Magic Means time just last year, and just to catch up with him and mm. you know say thanks. But yeah, he he was perfect for me because I was a bit headstrong. You know, when I a bit young and a naive and a bit bit bullish. Um, but he he taught me so many life lessons. Um, mm. My first year with him and. Um, you know, integrity, you know, places you don't go to, things you must do, all the hours you put in mm. um, to be, you know, what you want to be. And, you know, um, and these are the things I held true to myself today, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, him and, and Chick, his wife, were just and, – and, and they and they they led by example. They were tremendously hard workers. Mm. Um, you know, they were always up at, the you know, 3.30, you know, spot on and – Worked yeah. and everything was perfect. Like everything was, you couldn't leave until things were done perfectly. Mm. Um, and yeah, so much respect for Chicken K and mm. and Steve, who was his foreman at the time, Steve Lowe, and mm. uh, you know, they were always on top of me, making sure that I did the right thing all the time. So mm. and I and I needed that at the time, being a young, you know, teenager. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Chicka, who was absolutely horrified the first time you got ready to go to the races. Fashion was obviously not one of your stronger points. <laughs> you must have looked a bit shabby uh, because well, Chicka said, yeah. come on, you and I are going downtown. I'm going to buy you a whole new wardrobe. Correct. Is that true? <laughs> Mate, I'm a, bu- I'm a bushy. I'm a farmer, you know what I mean? I, <laughs> yeah. I'd, you know, like I'd never seen the city before. Like, mm. I'd, you know, um even when I was, you know, commercial, like you know, these are country towns, and um, to get down to the the high, the Gold Coast where there's high rises and all this, I mean, I'd never seen that in my life. So, mm. yeah, I was still in in the old um, farm gear, to be honest. <laughs> so she said, "We've got to change your change your look." <laughs> yeah. Well, as the winners continued to flow, you were riding in Brisbane on Saturdays more than you were on the Gold Coast at a time when Chris Munson, Brian York were absolutely dominating. You wrote plenty of winners, but you were constantly being suspended. At one stage, you were giving Malcolm Johnston's world record a nudge. Yeah, I, I, you know, I grew up admiring, and he was my idol, Malcolm, and I think I was trying to emulate him in the Stewart's mm. room. Oh, yeah, my will to win was just unbelievable. Um, and I used to just cross the line too often, you know. Mm. Um yeah, and and and, and I would I should have been fighting out the premiership with Chrissy Munson, the, the apprentice's title, you know. But instead, I was just spending most of my time on the sidelines, and mm. um, you know, not through um, bad stuff. It was just I kept crossing the line, you know, mm. um, in in trying to get a winner. Um, yeah, but were, you know, I, I look back and just the fondness of memories, you know. I, I, so of those times, I was learning quickly and. Been in that competitive environment and watching watching blokes like Brian York, who were just incredible jockeys, um, mm. great timing. Um, you just learn so much off these guys. Um, mm. It was yeah, you know, proper riders for certain. Yeah, you were only seventeen when you met a beautiful young lady called Sloan at the races. Initially, it was only a brief encounter on that occasion, but later, and you recognised her instantly when you ran into her at a Gold Coast nightclub and romance quickly followed. Yes, we've um, never been apart since. It was amazing. So, um, yeah, sometimes you just, uh, all the stars line up, don't they, mm. uh, Tappy? And um, I've had a few of those moments in my life, but that was probably the best one. So, um, yeah, we've got, yeah we've, got, we've got two amazing children and they're great people. Um, mm. And Sloane's just been... 
Yeah, my God, I'd, there's not enough I could say about her along the way because I've tested her on mm. numerous occasions and um, and she's just fronted up every time. Um, mm. You just couldn't ask for a better partner in crime, that's for certain. Now, you and uh, Sloane have got a, a boy and a girl. I yep. think Tate is the son. Yep. And Carter is your daughter. Correct. What age is Glenn? Yeah, Tate's 25. Yeah. Um, just about, he's going 26 this year, and Carter's just about 21. So, um, mm-hmm. and the best part about that, Tabby, they're just, they're just good people, great mm-hmm. human beings. They've just got you know, good, great manners. They've got great respect for everything. Um, you know, everyone who meets them just can't speak highly enough about how good of people they are. So that's just, mm-hmm. that's great for me to hear and, and you know, just the job that Sloane's done with these two is just um, unbelievable. Yeah, you better take some of the credit, my boy. Oh, well, you know, a little bit. They've got a little bit of me, but they've got more <laughs> of Sloane in them, I'm telling you. <laughs> She's a bit calmer than I am. But, um, yeah, but yeah. no, listen, they're just they're great people they're just, and they're doing their own thing, which is great. They live in Melbourne, don't they? Yes, they live in Melbourne. They grew up here mainly in Melbourne, mm. you know, the high school and all that stuff. So they, all their, their things are entrenched in Melbourne and mm. – um, and they just love it. They love Melbourne. So um, mm. there's not chance, not much of a chance they're moving away from here. Mm. When your apprenticeship concluded, you gained access to a fortune undreamed of by Alibaba, <laughs> enough money to immediately build a house on the Gold Coast and to run out and buy a new car, and life was oh so sweet until an institution called the Australian Tax Office suddenly appeared in your life. Yeah, that was the biggest, one of the biggest kicks in the guts I've ever had at a young, as, a, as a young age. Mm. Um, like when I say a fortune, it was, wasn't a fortune, but it was, you know, I set myself up a little bit. Um, and what happened, I hadn't paid tax throughout my whole apprenticeship. Nothing had really come out. Mm. I, was un, I was completely unaware. No tax file number, nothing. No one had ever looked after it. No. Um, and of course, when I come out of my time, when all this had to start doing all these things as an, as an adult, mm. um, it was quickly realised that nothing had ever been done. <laughs> oh, dear me. Wow! And they hit me with, like, they hit me with fines, penalty notices, and yeah, um, you know, it was. It, oh man, it was. My head was spinning for weeks. I didn't know what was happening. Um, mm. And uh, we worked out some deal with the tax department that I was to pay back. You know. Most of it, or all of it, but uh, with over a period, and um, wow, I was flat broke. I had not a stamp. <laughs> Goodness me, and I've got a couple of instances of that. By the time the tax department turned you upside down and shook the coins out of your pockets, you were so cash strapped, as you said, that on one occasion you went out to that new car you had parked outside on a special mission. You were looking yeah. for some coins, weren't you? Well, we didn't have. An, I didn't. Yeah, to get a newspaper and stuff. And I honestly, we were we were, we were flat broke. Didn't have a stamp, <clears throat> and <laughs> um, I had to get a newspaper. So I knew I was riding at Ipswich that day. Yeah. And I had three rides, and um, and I said to Sloan, I said, "We were, this is the oh, this, this is the day." I can clearly remember this is like it was yesterday. I said, "This is either the day that makes us or breaks us. We, if, if nothing happens today, we'll." We have to move back. To, we'll have to move back to your parents, and you know what I mean. I, I didn't want to do that, mm. and um, so I drove to Ipswich, and all three horses won. Oh dear me! And you could collect back, and then you know that you'd, you'd go to the secretary's office at the end of the day, and you collect your cash. You know your winning percentages, yeah, and your riding fees. Mm. So you know, it was like fifteen hundred dollars for the day, or you know something like that. Yeah, I earned, and um, mm. and that was that was it, Tabby. That was. We never looked back from that moment. No. Um, I bet you rode yeah. the third one like a man inspired. I rode all day like that, you know, but I was, <laughs> it was, I just, and that was the day, Tabby, that I realised that um, I perform under pressure. Yeah, you know, this that's is right. The day when you're backed into a corner mm. and and that's that's the day I recognised that um, the more pressure I'm under, um, the more I'm switched on, the more I'm, I'm just calmer. I'm just, mm. it's just, I'm better. Um you know, and I do this all the time now. It's just in. Oh, you know, no, you do. Yeah. You know, sometime before the tax uh, drama, one of Terry Chinner's owners, Peter Ship, 
gave you an unusual gift, two beautiful sapphires, and he told you to hang on to them because he believed their value would increase uh, down the track. Sadly, at the height of your crisis, one of those sapphires had to go. Well, they had to go, yeah. Um, <laughs> that was another story. I, yeah, I just, um, I, you know, they had to go because I had no money. So um, I took them to this place where you could trade um, jewels and sapphires mm. and opals and whatnot. Mm. And I'm sure I got touched up, but I didn't, you know, it was a load of money to me at the time. And yeah. I, I mean, I, we were only talking three or four thousand, you know. Was, but I, I don't know what they were worth, mate. They were probably worth 10 times that. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was a means to an end for me. Um, it was desperate times and I just had to I had to do it and uh, I felt terrible doing it because I'd promised Peter that I wouldn't. Mm. But desperate times and desperate things and um, it, it was just a, a stepping stone for me to go forward, otherwise I wouldn't have been out of it. So yeah. well, I had to go, you know. Mm. You made a few attempts to crack the Sydney scene. The first couple of times you went scurrying back to Queensland with your tail between your legs. What happened? Well, I wasn't going down to have a crack. I was actually down with Noel Doyle. He brought a team down, what's called Kinjitay and all that. I wasn't there down there to ride. I was just down to ride work and get a, have a bit of a look at the scene. So it wasn't mm-hmm. an attempt to crack in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just an, it was just a, um, a trip down with Noel. Yeah. And um, I don't think I rode a winner or anything, but I enjoyed the experience. I just, and I, thought, I was just like, man, you know, to watch the big time. Um, the second trip, I came down. And I wrote a few winners. I wrote a stakes. I wrote a group winner for the late Max Lees. Mm. And I wrote a couple heap of winners for – I wrote winners for Clary Connors. And that was the second trick. And after that, I, when I went home, and um, mm. that's when I was really getting the feeling I could probably go back to Sydney and have a crack. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Glenn, it was Max Lees, wasn't it? Who yep. played a major part in getting you to give it one final shot. Yep. Yeah, I rang Max Lees and asked him if he would support me, and he said, "Mate, if you come, then I'll give you, I'll give you a big kick, big support." And um, mm. God bless him. You know, he was he was God's gift. He, he was a beautiful gentleman, wasn't he? You know, oh, a great bloke, Max. Oh yeah. my God! And you look at I look at Christian now, and I see so much of his dad in Christian. Mm, me too. Um, he he moves the same. He talks the same. He's got that same gentle. He's got a bit more sass in him, you know, Christian. Mm. Um, Cheekiness, but he's the same. He's he's his dad, and um, I can't help but look at Christian and think, God Almighty, you're your father. Yeah. Um, because I was, I I was, I loved his dad. Mm. Um, uh, I don't mind saying that because he was an amazing influence on me. Just the way he about, just his calmness, the way he did things, and just the support mm. he and the trust he gave me. Mm. And I had a lot of winners for Max, and it was a great time. And he he actually got me going mm. um, in in Sydney, which is I. You know, every day I think about those type of things. Good to hear you say it. One morning at Randwick, you wandered over to a bloke called TJ Smith. Yep. And you asked if you could jump on a couple for him and ride him work. Now, you knew who TJ Smith was, but you're not sure that he knew who you were. Correct. Is that right? Yeah, no, I was quite brash, you know. I was never, I was never ever... Um, Sit back on. I was always on the front foot all the time. Mm. Um, I I walked straight up to TJ and um, my this is my idol. Like everybody's idol. This is the king, right? Mm. And I asked him if I could ride work, and he immediately said, "Yep, jump on. You can jump on." And I started riding work for him. Mm. Um, I'd actually ridden an Ipswich Cup winner for him when I was in Brisbane. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. So, but I didn't had never met him, so he knew that I, you know, I only had the one ride for him and it won an Ipswich Cup, and mm. there. Um, and, um, yeah, I started riding a bit of work from him and then all of a sudden, he, you know, he started putting me on like I was riding beside Shane Guy, you know, every morning. Mm. Oh, what an experience, you know, and I was watching Shane and learning. Um, all the good jockeys there, Jimmy, you know, God, mm. just just the names of these incredible jockeys. And um, so I was just like this massive, massive sponge every morning, yeah. looking, learning, listening to TJ, looking at the way he did things, observed things. He was an incredible human being. What a horseman he was. Mm. Um, just his eye. You know, like even, you know, like Maxie um, and uh, I'm Tappy, like I used to wait for him at the 2,000-metre mark and you have to walk across the crossings, you know. this is And this is when TJ was getting towards the end. I've know? seen and him he, there. He used to park his yeah, Rolls-Royce near the 2,000 barrier. Yep, he'd yeah. park his Rolls. So I'd get there before him every morning and I'd wait for him. 
and we walk across the tracks together mm. because there was six or so tracks and he was kind of losing his vision a bit, you know. So yeah. I'd always wait for him, you know, and, and he'd rock up at the same time. So it was like clockwork. And I promise you, we used to walk across crack tracks and he'd have his head down and he was look, and you wouldn't think he'd be looking. And um, he would see, I don't know, 20 horses go past him, maybe 30. Mm. And he'd see one and say, hey, boy, what's that, what's that one? <laughs> and I swear to God, it'd be March Hare or it'd be Saintly. Yeah. Like it wouldn't be, it would be the Group 1 horse. Yeah. And I was just going, how does he do this? And mm. he did this on so many occasions. Mm. He'd go, oh, we try, we'll try and buy that horse. You know, we'll try and buy that, you know. So <laughs> not to get it, you know. And I'd be thinking, oh, TJ, you can't buy that one, you know. But it, yeah. he'd only see the good horse. And he'd just move, go past him. And he, he did this instinctively. I don't know how he did it, but mm. crazy. I'm trying to remember the name of the horse you won an Ipswich Cup on for TJ Smith. Yeah, I it wasn't can't Fine it Spy, was it? Oh, I, I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, I give it a good ride. I come from last and circled. I mean, I uh, mm. weave my way through the field and and it won. Um, mm. I, 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 it is name escapes me, Tabby. Doesn't matter, Glenn. I'll never forget your first Group One win on the enigmatic Telesto in the nineteen ninety four Chipping Norton Stakes. He was last in the run, as he usually was, but you got a glorious inside run. I remember coming around the turn and you cut out half the field on the corner. Then you got to the outside of the leaders and he went on to win the Chipping Norton. Hey, mate, that is 89 Group 1s ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a day. I mean, um, he was also it was regularly ridden by Shane, mm. Um um Mr. Begg trained him, and he was a, a weird, weird colt. He he was one of them horses you you just had to do, let him do exactly what he wanted to do in the first half of the race, and yeah. um, and that's what I did, you know. And you just had to trust that he was, you know, he'd always break thirty four his last six hundred. Yeah. Um, and that's just what he did, you know. And um, yeah, what a thrill to get my first Group One as you know, geez, and to get it on in that fashion was was really that that sort of made people sit up and take notice. Oh, that, it did, um, absolutely. You know, I could compete, you know. Yeah, and Graham Begg was the trainer. Now, Glenn, you've won a staggering seven Doncasters between 1996 and 2019. Your personal favourite is your second Doncaster <laughs> winner, Private Steer. You won a total of six races on that mare, including a Stratbroke, a Doncaster and an all-age stakes. Now, nothing went right for you, did it, in the 04 Doncaster? No, that was um, that was just a uh, that was just a moment where where a horse was so beautifully trained and, and so beautifully presented for the races and at the absolute peak of their powers. And yeah, I, I was so confident of her ability to win that race, and but, but we got to the 1400 motor mark and there was a bad shuffle up in front of me and one come out under my neck just to avoid the trouble because I got speed off the track and then you know like I was way out of position I was like oh my god this is just could cost me this cost me the race you know um but then I immediately just switched like in that same millisecond switched over it's like whoa calm down and you know we could just got to work this out you know and um from that point it had to be just right for luck you know just cut every save every inch and um mm. and i did i just went back and just rode her for her amazing turn of speed and you know obviously you've got to have the animal to do these things you know that you, you know you just got to know that this animal if you give it a chance it's going to bust its lungs for you and that's what she did jesus christ her, her last two quarters were just yeah off the charts and you know beat a very good feel that day and um in the end, in the end, she made it look easy. That's what the good ones do. But, yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, you know, that was a, that was a thrill because it, she turned the impossible into the possible and yeah. made it look easy. That was just, mm. you get these moments on race horses at times, and and they, they truly shock you. They, you know what I mean? Like it just shouldn't happen, but they somehow make it happen. That and that's what the, the true good ones do. Mm. Glenn, we'll just pause briefly to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll be back with you after this. A stunning boutique catalogue of 60 race fillies and broodmares has been put together for the English Chairman's Sale at Riverside on Friday night, May the 7th. The Chairman's Spectacular 
will be the culmination of a memorable week, which will also take in the Australian weanling sale and the Australian broodmare sale. The Chairman's Catalogue features Group 1 winning mares like Natoya, Celebrity Queen, Pippi, In Her Time, who's in Foal Do I Am Invincible, El Dorado Dreaming and Dance Dance Dance. Another headliner will be Angel of Truth's Dam, Scarlettini, who'll be offered in foal to Fastnet Rock. Many stakes-winning mares will be offered and there are siblings to the likes of Sunlight and Forbidden Love. There'll be a buzz in the auditorium when Kerr Cheval enters the ring. She's a half-sister by Schnitzel to world champion Winx and she's in foal to Capitalist. Wildcard entries for the chairman's sale remain open until April 23rd. It's Friday night, May 7. English presents a unique sale in a unique atmosphere. The 2021 Chairman's Sale. Well, Glenn, I'm looking at the timepiece and we're starting yep. to lag a bit, mate, and there are a number of horses I want yep. you to reflect on. You loved Sky Heights. You won yep. four races on him. They were four good ones. The Rose yep. Hill Guineas, the AJC Derby, the Alumba, and the Sydney St Ledger. You led yep. in the Derby at Randwick. Yeah, I did because um, I liked him. He was a bit of a um, – I liked him. I watched him run under the RC Oaks and he got this big rangy thing that was a bit lost. Mm. And I thought, I reckon this was the horse, you know, for the – and um, and it was a it was a bill. Mm. It was a bit of a headstrong bugger. Mm. And I thought if I, if I just let this horse do his own thing – he would just outstay everything, and that's what he did. You know, he was mm. big, strong, powerful, you know, full of energy type of horse he was, so I just that's how I yeah, let him mm. go. Your first Golden Slipper win in 1995 came out of the blue. On the Friday night, you didn't have a ride. You got a call from Lee Friedman who told you Jim Cassidy had been grounded pending an inquiry into the case which would later be known as the Jockey Tapes Affair. Uh, Lee told you the horse was very raw and very green. Even though he'd had a few runs, he'd had half a dozen starts, but he was still raw, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He actually went to the paddock after the um, Blue Diamond. They put him in the paddock to not run, and then Anthony noticed the bugger running around and looking so good in the paddock. Anthony Lang Lee, I said, this horse has done unbelievably well. I think you should run him in the slipper. So he went straight to the slipper without a run, and um, and Lee said he'll do one or two things. Um, he'll either he will win or he'll run last. He's that type. Of, he said he mm. you'll just and he said you'll know when you get on him. Go to the bearers. Yeah. He said he's he's that type of horse, and um, well, when I went to the bearers, uh, I felt like this horse. I, I'd never walked. I don't think it might have been my first slipper ride. Mm. Um. But I commented to someone on the various, I reckon this horse will win the slipper. Did you? <laughs> oh, mate, he just gave me this amazing feel. And, mm. yeah, um, just a beautiful colt. And, mm. um, yeah, I was able to give him a good ride. And, and oh, beat, a cracker ride. You saved a lot of ground along the fence. Yeah, yeah, and beat Octagonal. Yeah. Um, and I think, our, was it our most, Kay, or was it? No, I think, I think the, the filly ran third, Mill Rich. Mill Rich, that's right. Yeah, and Mace Kay may have run fourth. Yeah, so it was a pretty hot race, you know, and um, I think they were pretty confident with Octagonal winning, and um, I beat yeah. Grant Cooks there on the, on the line. And, um, yeah. Yeah, that was the first time I got that feeling, Toby, like a winning a major. It yeah. was just out of body. That was just unbelievable. Mm. Well, crazy, you won, crazy. You won it again in 2008 on Sebring in the Star Thoroughbreds colours. Two golden slippers on your CV. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, great mm. times. You savour the memory of two rides on a remarkable horse called So You Think in the 2009 Cox Plate. And uh, I think you rode him into second place another day on That's the, right, yes. the Emirates, wasn't it? Emirates Mile, yep, mm. yep. Glenn, this horse won 10 Group 1s, five in Australia, five overseas. It's astonishing. Yeah, astonishing. Um, I've only ever ridden two champions in my life, and I don't say that lightly. He was one, and mm. Mackay was the other. Yep. Um, he, was a, he was a special force from the time, time I got on him. Um, mm. My first time I got him on was a, a jump out at, at Flemington because I wanted to try the blinkers on him. Mm. And 
I knew that Bart had a very special feeling about this colt. Like I, I had a feeling that Bart thought this was probably the best horse he might have ever trained. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I worked him in that jump out, and I said to Bart, I said, "Mate, you've got something extraordinary here." And he, he just sort of looked at me. He knew, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the way he went out and won that Cox Plate as a he wasn't even three. When yeah. he won that first Cox Plate, he as on his date of birth, he was a three-year-old. But he on his date of birth, he actually mm. wasn't. Yeah, which made it even extraordinary. But um, mm. oh my God, he was one of the sexiest horses I've ever sat on. He had he had so much charisma. Did he? His class. Oh my God, he was just a beautiful animal, and um, mm. he he just had this extraordinary engine, you know, and um. Extraordinary. He had a great presence about him and just a joy to be on, yeah. Yeah, well, he was one of your four Cox Plate winners. Glenn, I'm pleased you mentioned Bart again because I just remembered something. He told me once that not long after you'd come down from Queensland, you rode a horse for him at Warwick Farm on a Wednesday and you jumped off it and uh, whatever you said caused some offence to the owner who thought the horse was a hell of a lot better than it really was. And I remember Bart saying, but that young bloke from Queensland, that boss, <laughs> he, he said, my God, he was very direct with one of my owners the other day. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you tended to do that, didn't you? Yeah, it's been a trait of mine. I'm, I, I've always been brought up like that, tell it, speak the truth and speak what you, speak your mind, you know what I mean? I've, it's, yeah. you know, it's brought me undone a lot, don't worry, but... Um, <laughs> But I, I find it very difficult to look someone in the eye and tell them the not not the truth. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've I've I find that very difficult to do. Um, and sometimes it's it, people don't like to hear the truth. That's the what I, that's the unfortunate part I've had to learn. Um, mm. Most people, especially when it comes to the animals, they don't. They'd rather be told a lie um, mm. sometimes, which is, I find very difficult <laughs> to take. <laughs> Well, um, you've at least learned to water it down a bit, though. You, yeah. Your diplomacy levels are definitely better. A little bit better. <laughs> you get a twinkle in the eye whenever you talk about Fastneck Rock, yep. now a great stallion and previously a great sprinter. You rode him in all of his six wins, which included a lightning and an Oakley plate. In your mind, you thought he was a superstar, didn't you? Yeah, he was probably going to be my next champion. To be honest, um, we never ever seen. He was so untapped. We never seen the best of that that colt at any point. Um, like he, he carried fifty eight in a new market. Like as a three year old, it's just unheard of. Like you just, yeah. you know, like I won a, a new market on Bivouac recently, and he carried fifty. I think fifty three and a half or fifty four. Yeah. Like, and he had a good record, you know. But this horse carried fifty eight, um, and ran second, and. And he was still maturing. That's the thing about this colt. He was still oh, – I felt he was 80% of the horse he was going to be, mm. which was scary. He had so much power and so much speed, mm. um, so much will to win. Um, and, and, and wrapped in that whole package, he was such a gentle colt. Um, God, he had a beautiful demeanour. You know, the, the day he won the lightning, Tappy, mm. you know he bust through the barriers that day? It, this has never happened to me in my life. Well, what happened? He was so ready in the barriers all the time. The horse beside me kicked out and mm. made the noise like the gates were open. So he launched. Did he? And yeah, yeah. and and broke through the front. But at the at the same time, the guy who was there, the the, the um, barrier tenant, actually grabbed me, and I come off the back of him. So he galloped down the track for a hundred meters mm. and stopped. Yeah. And and looked around and said, "Geez, this isn't right." No, did he? <laughs> no, then the clerk of the course went to grab him and he, he – clerk of the course got too close and he kicked out the clerk of the course and went another 100 metres mm. and stopped again. Goodness me. Mate, they got him, brought him back to the start, and he was as calm as anything, put him in the barriers and he went out and won, and won the lightning. Have you ever seen that in your life? No, that's incredible. It, it, that's what he did that day. It was amazing. Mm. And that's what that's what type of demeanour he had. He was so cool and mm. he, he was so smart. He knew that something wasn't right. <laughs> I wasn't on yeah. his back. <laughs> he worked it out. He worked it out. What a great horse. Well, you were all set to accompany him to England for races like the King's Stand and the Golden Jubilee, but plans were aborted when he developed that awful form of travel sickness that horses can get, and that was the end of him. That was the end of him, yeah. Um, He got very, very ill um, to the point where they thought they were going to lose him. Um, 
and um, obviously, yeah, they had to retire him. There, and he just never recovered. Um, mm. But anyway, we his legacy was is still strong. You know, he's um, he's become arguably one of the best sides in Australia that we've ever seen. Mm. Um, and he's doing it overseas, has been doing it for a long time, you know, and, in, mm. and even as far reaching as America, you know, yeah. he's doing it. So, mm. And he's doing it at this age. He's, 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 I actually went and seen him not long ago, and mm. he looks as young and as vibrant as when I rode him as a, as a racehorse. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's, I don't know, he's an extraordinary animal. Mm. You speak with great reverence of a horse called Shogun Lodge. Winner of 13 races, 20 placings, 4.6 million. You became his regular jockey when Shane Dye went to Hong Kong in the year 2000. You won two Group 1s on Shogun Lodge, but you ran second on the horse in another seven Group 1s. Yeah. Yeah, he he was the ultimate warrior and and probably my all-time favourite horse. You know, like I know McIvy in that, but... Um, it, oh geez, I loved it. He was a horse that actually I did love. You know, mm. I loved, I loved seeing him at track work in the mornings. I loved being on his back. Mm. Um, everything about him, he was magnificent. This beautiful colour, mm. um, and he was, you know, he had his he had his fair share of problems. This this bloke, mm. um, like he he'd get around in the mornings like an old man crippled. You know, but man, race day he was a beast, and he just turned up and give his all. Um, mm. You know, I ruled the day that he, he should have beat Shaga, um, Sunline in the Doncaster. I got I got taken out of the race early, mm. and um, he she beat me a short half head, and clearly I should have beat her. And I'm on level weights. Mm. Um, oh, and and you know, I, I, it took me a long time, Pappy, when he in the Emirates race at at Flemington when he had yeah. a, had an aneurysm. You were his jockey. That was in yeah, two thousand and three. Yeah. Yeah, he died. Uh, on the track and like he just and he tried to stay up you know we were galloping along and he, he obviously was dead underneath me and he was and he, he, we both come to the crash into the turf and mm. um it I mean, that, that took me so long to get over um yeah. um just to see that warrior brought beside me dead you know like and um mm. yeah and bobby thompson was I, it, it gutted him for months oh, bob's you know. not over it yet glenn you've only no. got to mention shogun lodge and he'll still yeah. get a tear in the eye well they were best friends you know they yeah. were actually best friends and um yeah and he was yeah you don't you, you know you try not to get to affection with these horses, but i mean i'm mm. always like that because i do love the animal but yeah I, i've never been so close to an animal as that bloke i just oh mm. it just brought a smile put a smile on my face every time i seen him and you know it's to glow you know mm. I asked you on the phone during the week to nominate the fastest horse you've ever ridden. I mean the horse with the most exhilarating turn of foot, point mm. to point. And yep. I've got to say, your answer surprised me a little. Yeah, it would have surprised you. It surprised me. Mm. Um, I've never ridden a horse that was just so electric off the mark as this bloke, and I've ridden, like, like I said, two champions. Mm. But this horse called Yes, Yes, Yes was... yeah. I mean, I've, oh, for sheer speed off the mark, he was like um, Usain Bolt. Like, oh, mm. and, I, and I only ever got to ride this horse twice in my life. Mm. One was a gallop on the course proper at Randwick, mm. where, I only, where I barely broke 36, mm. but I felt like I was walking. Mm. Um, and then it was in the Everest when I got to feel that power. I mean, that was just – I don't know. It's hard to describe, Tappy. That it, it, you can horses can go fast. There are horses that can go very fast over a short period, but it's, it's the manner in which they do it and the ease and the way they do it. Yeah. This horse had he broke ten, and it was and it was the ridiculous ease of the way he did it was what got me. Mm. Um. Yeah, and it's that was another one, mate. Like to see a colt like him retired early with a tendon injury. Yeah. Uh, that one really hurt me because mm. I was looking forward to this was my next Fastnet Rock. I promise you, that was my next one. Yeah. And you wait decades to find these horses. Mm. Um, I'm talking about the top shelf specials. You know, like these aren't just the, yeah. you know, these are speed that's only reserved for the very few, like the Winxes, the Black Caviars. Yeah, the you chosen know, few. The chosen few um, that have actually got that 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 speed. And um, mm-hmm. and I'd finally, at my age, found another one. 
And um, I, I said to Sloan, this is my next fast net rock. This is the cult that's going to yeah. – he will just – he will be extraordinary. And um, we never got to see him again. And, um, the, the, yeah, it was a shame. But mm. like fast net rock, I'm sure this cult, he's got that trait. Um, he's going to be – he's going to leave a very big footprint in our breeding industry. I've got no doubt about that. Mm. Well, I'm changing direction here. I was very surprised one day in the late 1990s when I spotted you at a racing luncheon wearing glasses, which is not a good look for a top jockey. <laughs> now, you told me on the day that you'd been riding in races for quite some time using contact lenses, but you'd already spoken to a specialist about the newly developed laser surgery and you decided yep. to give it a go with happy results. Yeah, you know what I do? should have done too, Tappy. I probably should have went back to the appeals board and said, you know what, all this time it was just not me. It was I couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> I might have got them ones ticked back, put back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I was, yeah, I was having trouble with my eyes for, for quite a while and I, and I didn't realise no. um, how bad my eyes were until I actually went and got them tested and they said, you know, you're bad. Uh, but anyway, we got that rectified and, um, yeah, they, they've been good ever since, thank God. Mm. Mate, there's little doubt the lowest point in your career came in 2002 when a fall that looked relatively simple in Macau left you with a fracture of the C2 vertebrae. Now, Glenn, you knew instantly you'd broken your neck and you deliberately remained completely still. Yeah, that's incredible, Tuppy. Um, you have these moments in your life where just um, things happen. I mean, um, yeah, it was incredible. Like I, I hit the deck and it was a relatively simple fall, but the way I fell was, wasn't good. And mm. I heard this massive crack in my neck, and um, but I felt the heat immediately. And I thought, well, I knew, knew I broke my neck. Yeah. And um, I just remained as still and calm as I possibly could. And mm. I just told no one to touch me until I, the ambulance got there and, yeah, and, and as it was, it I'd, I'd, I'd broken my C2 in three places, um, which is a pretty ordinary bone. You don't want to break that one. And, um, no. yeah, I was, I was later to learn that, for, you know, Dr. Julian Chang, who was in Hong Kong, he was like one of the – this is like the top two neurosurgeons in the world. Mm. Um, he explained to me if I'd moved my head 10 degrees left or right, I would have turned that fracture, which was stable, mm. into an unstable – fracture which would have severed me spinal cord at that point yeah. so um yeah just uh, you know just lucky that i was conscious um throughout the like i was conscious i didn't get knocked out no um thinking and I was clearly. Yeah. yeah i was thinking clearly um and i and you know you have these moments of clarity in your life that um everything just stops and you just you know you breathe and you just slow things down and, and you take control of the situation and that was just mm. one of those moments you know yeah you spent several months in a neck brace with a, a sort of a halo-type headpiece which immobilised your upper vertebrae. And, Glenn, that recovery was astonishing. You were back in a relatively short time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, things happened at that time and things, life changed a bit for me. And But I was still, you know, I was very adamant that because the, the surgeon sometimes said I wouldn't ride again and, um, you know, just you've got to, you know, be blessed that you've got, you know, and turned into a paraplegic or you were killed in this fall. But mm. I wouldn't have anything. I wouldn't have a bar of that, you know. No. I just took the opinion, well, this is a bone, mm. um, like I'd broken other bones. And mm. I was thinking, well, if this repairs, um, or I have no reason why I won't go back to it, you know. Um, there was never a fear factor. So I had some very, very good, like that neurosurgeon, Dr. Julian Chan, was very good. Um, like I said, one of the best in the world. And then I got back to Sydney and I got some very aggressive guys here who were on the same page, neurosurgeons, and they understood that um, they come on board. And um, I had that halo brace for, four, I think it was four months, I think three or four months, mm. with these damn screws stuck in my skull. <laughs> and, um, and um, yeah, and I was, mate, I kept myself fit and busy while I had the thing on. I was walking mm. the streets and doing things. And because mm. I thought, well, if I keep myself blood pumping, keep myself physically active, I'll, you know, I'll increase this, the blood flow and I'll make this thing heal quick. And that's yeah. what it did, you know. And um, yeah, it was just, um, it was never a doubt, put it that way, for my, in mine. It might have been no. a doubt in their minds, but it was never a doubt yeah. for me. You're a unique character. It's not hard to see um, why. 
uh, you've reached the heights uh, that you've achieved in, in a very tough game, the racing game. You know, you've enjoyed happy associations with a long list of champion trainers. You've admired the individual talents of each and every one of them. But there is one man who remains supreme in your estimation. Yeah. Yeah, he was um, – I'll probably get teary about this one, but Guy Walter was – yeah, he was the ultimate. I mean – he was without a bet, you know, like one of the best horse people I've ever, you know, you talk about Bart and all these great trainers and all these, but Guy Walter had a, had a, a different way about him. Um, uh, he was just, but he just had this beautiful presence, you know. He, when he walked to the stables or walked into the barn or walked into the, you know, the in the in the morning at 3.30, when he walked up, he just got this, you know, he just felt this presence of him. He was very calm. Mm. Um, he was just a beautiful human being, mate, and he just made people around him the same. Yeah. Um, and his he horses made, too. Yeah, his horses were the same, his staff mm. were the same. But he just had this ability to make you feel very special. Mm. Um, he never talked about himself. He asked a lot of questions about you. Um, and he just had this ability to bring out this I don't know. Bring it, bring out the best in you. Um, and I just enjoyed, I enjoyed every moment um, around Guy. Mm. And obviously, Wendy was a big part of that. You know, she was beautiful. She is. She's a beautiful woman, and yeah. they complemented each other because she had a bit more spark and a bit more up and about. You know, where mm. Guy was very much, he would rather be around the horses um, than people. Mm. Um, he, he shied away from all that stuff, but he was. He, I don't know. He just had this ability to bring a horse. When you know, when he's people would say, oh, "I wonder where that horse come from," because he he somehow transformed him. Mm. He, he transformed a horse mm. from an ordinary one, not not to say an ordinary one, but a horse that wasn't doing well or whatever, into a good horse. Yeah. Very quickly. But what people didn't see was the twelve months of planning that got that horse to that point, and That's then he right. pushed the mm. then he pushed the button, mm. and then they just they actually come online. And then, so the people would say, "Jesus, where'd this horse come from?" Mm. But he was doing this twelve months. <laughs> you know, he was planning this moment. You know, it was yeah. incredible to watch. Great horseman, great bloke, the late Guy Walter. Well, Bossy, this is beyond doubt the lengthiest podcast we've ever presented on the website, <laughs> which is exactly what I expected. Because, as I said earlier, when you interview a bloke like Glenn Boss, it, it's hard to know where to start and where to finish. We could go on for a long time yet, but we'll leave the unanswered questions for another day. Your story is an inspirational one. From that first win in a 300-metre dash at Gympie to the ranks of Australia's elite jockeys. You've been a fierce competitor. You've been a totally dedicated professional and a great bloke to deal with. Thanks for giving us so much time on the podcast, mate. I'm highly delighted and very privileged that uh, you saw fit to give me so much time on a Sunday morning. Oh, Tabby, you know what? There would not be another bloke that would I would have more pleasure speaking to you about these sort of things than you. You know, obviously, you know, I've watched you and being with you. You know, you've known me for a long time. I've known you. We've I've admired your work as much as you probably have admired mine. So the respect is unbelievable, mate. You know. You're a doyen of our sport, and um, and you continue to do be be that person. And um, yeah, and I'm humbled that you've actually given me the time, actually, Tappy. And I'm I'm very respectful, and thank you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Bossy. Great to talk. Catch up soon. Cheers. <laughs>